This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. But I'm Mike Simpson. New York City and the suburbs ground zero for the pandemic. Here back in March and April in the U.S., hospitals slammed. Thousands of people died. Now it is L.A.'s turn. Southern California, ground zero. Hospitals being slammed. The death numbers going up. We'll look into how bad it is in L.A. right now and if help is on the way. So when you get the uh, Pfizer or upcoming Moderna vaccines, you're supposed to get a second dose after the first one. But is that second shot really necessary? Rich people getting creative, if you want to put it that way, when it comes to trying to cut in line to get the vaccine. And uh, we will end today's episode with a history lesson of sorts about the country's last surviving quarantine hospital and how it has helped stop the spread of nasty diseases. But we start with the worst of the winter surge hitting our area, Los Angeles, right now. Kathy Chittister is an RN and director of the L.A. County Emergency Medical Services Agency. So, Kathy, what are the solutions to the problems that uh, this area is facing? I, I think what, where my area of expertise is is uh, the um, 911 system and ambulances uh, people are calling 911 because they have signs and symptoms, not just of COVID, but other medical emergencies. And that system uh, obviously interacts very closely with the hospitals. And when the hospitals are impacted, our 911 emergency system is way impacted right now. So we're seeing wait times of one to five hours to offload patients at hospitals, uh, people waiting in the ambulance on the ambulance gurneys. And a lot of that has to do with what you were saying, that the hospital ICUs are impacted. Um, all of our hospitals are working at full capacity. They're, they're moving patients around. It's a um, living, breathing system. They, they are very stressed right now. And one of the big issues is the hospital staff. Um, we really have a lot of staffing shortages. This has been going on for a long time. Um, the hospitals do make room, even though that they're at capacity with their ICUs, they end up making areas, other areas of the hospitals to fit ICU patients into, and that's, that's what's occurring now. Uh, when that happens, patients in the emergency room may be backed up. Um, it, they'll, they'll hold patients in the emergency department that really need an ICU bed, that we're, they're waiting for that bed to open up for them to find space um, to send the patient to, and then patients in the emergency department waiting room or in the ambulances um, have no place to put the patient within the, the hospital emergency room walls. So then they're waiting out in the ambulance. So this is a big issue for us. Um, we started to ask people not to call 911 unless they have a medical emergency, uh, but to be sure to reach out or to seek out care at urgent cares uh, through their physician office through uh, nurse um, advice lines. Uh, but if they do have a medical emergency, be sure to access the, the ER, but to expect uh, very long delayed uh, times to see a physician or to be um, put back into the emergency department proper. Uh, they're pretty much overflowing at the seams right now. So that brings us though back to the first question. I realize that there's not some magic pill that you know yeah. can solve all of this, but what do you do when, when the wait times are that long? Is there some sort of relief valve that you can pull or, you know, you can send people other places, but if the hospital is just as full there, then you're out of luck. So what are the possible answers? That's exactly where we're at right now is every single hospital is impacted. 
Uh, and we're, when you're looking for staff, I mean, if you had a disaster that was an earthquake and it was centralized, it was in, you know, um, of the LA region, we could pull from Orange County, you could pull from Riverside, you could go to Arizona um, to get staff or to send the patients. But right now, every single hospital in all the surrounding counties are impacted. So the hospital's trying to they are moving staff around, they're changing staffing responsibilities, they're educating staff to put, um, allow them to be doing a higher level of care. Uh, for instance, to pay, uh, staff that normally work on a telemetry unit that have uh, responsibilities and knowledge of EKGs and telemetry, telemetry, they're giving them additional education to move them into the ICU. So there's a lot of things um, hospitals have in their back pocket that they're able to do. But we're really so stressed right now that those things are coming, uh, becoming limited. So, Kathy, I, I want to come back at you again uh, on the solutions uh, issue. And look, I mean, let's be really candid. I mean, some things don't have solutions. Maybe, maybe this is one of them, but I don't accept that yet. So if it were up to you, if, if you didn't have to run anything by anybody, and if someone sat you down in a room and said, Kathy, you're experienced, you know the healthcare system, especially here in uh, California. What would you come up with that you think would help? Well, what the hospitals need now, and the hospitals are the, obviously they're the center of this crisis. And I will tell you that they are doing miraculous work right now. And anybody uh, listening, please reach out to your hospitals and thank them for the work that they're doing. Uh, what they need is staff right now. So uh, medical staff, um, nurses, respiratory therapists, physicians, that's what the hospitals need. We've been working with the state uh, to try to get more staff to the hospitals to open up more ICU beds, to open up more telemetry beds. Um, and this can be done uh, with additional staff. But right now, medical staff um, are really at a premium. So that's where do what we where do we find them though if we're short? I mean, can we get foreign nurses? This has been talked about, but it seems like it's been talked about for a while. Bringing people in, if you can't get them in the states, then uh, get them from other countries where maybe the surge isn't as bad. But then we just we're, we're still waiting. We're still waiting. Yeah, and if that process, if there was a way to speed that process up, um, we'd we'd certainly welcome it. What what about getting people out of retirement, uh, doctors, nurses who may have nothing to do at the moment? Because let's face it, you can't do much during the pandemic. Uh, is yeah. there a, is there a good effort to bring those people back for active duty, so to speak? There certainly um, has been that discussion, and it, a lot of people uh, at the beginning of this pandemic, a lot of people volunteered until they realized what they were. Uh, getting themselves into. And then if you think about it, the retired nurses and physicians are really in the high risk group for, for COVID. They're older than 65. They may have some comorbidities. Um, so we haven't had a, a lot of luck, although there's been that discussion about bringing them um, out of retirement and, and into the working force. So I guess I'm still puzzled. Where do we get, and, and you're right, you need more staff because the beds, you can always buy a bed. Uh, it's the staff that's critical. But yeah. if, if it's difficult, if not impossible, to bring retired people back because of their potential issues with COVID, uh, and maybe they just don't want to, if it's difficult 
or slow to bring people, trained medical professionals from other countries here. So what other option is left? You can't just graduate people quicker from college. Well, they have done some things that they have allowed people to work as interim nurses without having, not being uh, completely fully licensed yet. They, they've tried to do some uh, creative activities such as that. Um, so they're looking for staff. Uh, the hospitals can ask for flex from their licensing CDPH to expand um, the number of patients that, that individual nurses um, can see. So hospitals have been working in that arena. Um, we wanna keep, uh, continue to have very safe patient care. And that, that's what's been really interesting to me is that even though we're in this crisis and the hospitals are bursting at the scene with patients, they're still doing all the things that they need to do to keep patient care safe. They're still following all the regulations. So we're not at the point yet where we're in absolute crisis mode, where they're not following regulations. They're, they have no uh, ratios or um, they're, they're cutting corners on other aspects. So that's a good thing. We're, we're not quite there yet, but we are bursting at the seams and we do need staff. Kathy Jidister, director of the L.A. County Emergency Medical mm-hmm. Services Agency. Is two really better than one? You're supposed to get two shots of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. You get the first shot, then come back three or four weeks later for the second. But does the second dose really matter? Yeah, if we skipped it, we could double the supply, right? Which would allow more people to get the vaccines quicker, speeding up the immunity process. Dr. Amesh Adalja is senior scholar at Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security. So, doctor, the first dose gives you something. The second heightens the immune response. But does the first give you enough? I think it's something that's important to discuss, and there definitely is a benefit to a single-dose vaccination about seven days after vaccination. You do have uh, significant immunity to to developing symptomatic COVID-19, and there is a question when we don't have enough vaccines, if that's the best strategy, and then come back around and do the second doses. But the, the other side of that is that the the clinical trials were based on a two-dose regimen, and that's what was studied, and we don't have strong data on how long a single-dose would work because those individuals did get a second dose 21 days or 28 days later. So we don't know how long the immunity is from a single dose. So that's the, that's the kind of conundrum. But I think it is something that we want to look at the data and understand, and, and maybe that's something we'll get more information on. I, I got my single dose today, um, and I'm planning to go back and get my, my second dose in, in three weeks. But, but when you say that there's no data on how long the first dose lasts for, there's no data, as you know, for how long the second one lasts for. Well, I do know I do know that the clinical trial went on is, is ongoing right now, so the data is accruing. Those individuals got their second dose, and they were followed at least two months for safety reasons for the from the second dose, and then it's still ongoing. They're still collecting data. It's just that the, there wasn't a, a separate arm, and maybe there should have been a separate arm where they gave people a single dose and then followed them for several weeks, because all we have on the single dose is that it lasted 21 days because that's the, the interval between the two doses or 28 days for the Moderna. It's just hard to make a, a decision with limited data. And I, and I think it's something that that we that's important to think about, uh, but I don't know if we're going to find any kind of recommendation to do that, although there are some that are advocating. So I, I myself find it a hard way to a hard thing to, to decide. Do you think these trials even make it much, much further, though? I mean, practically, people who got the placebo are going to want to get the vaccine if they didn't get it. And if, you know, we start moving through January, February and 
there to the point where there there's more supply. If I got the placebo and I know that this is at least working for the healthcare workers over the last few months, like I'm going to want mine because I was in the trial. I was trying to help. I, I think the trials are going to rapidly kind of uh, peter off and there won't be any blinding in them anymore. But we will still get data on those individuals to understand what happens to the vaccinated people from those trials. Do they get do they get infected and at what interval do they get infected and what happens to their antibody levels? What happens to their T cell immunity over a period of time? Th- that's going to be how we determine whether or not there needs to be a booster in one year or two years or five years or whatever it might be. Now, I know a lot of people are probably wondering because they keep hearing about how some people uh, for both of these vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna ones, uh, some people have uh, minor, mild, rare cases, more severe uh, reactions. You just you said got your uh, vaccine today. So, so far, what? So far, nothing. Everything seems fine. It's I got my my vaccine around 8.30 a.m. Eastern time, so about eight hours ago, and everything seems to be fine. My arm is not sore. I'm, I'm, I'm poking on it right now. It's not hurting where, where, where the vaccine spot was. I haven't had any fevers, chills, or headache or anything like that, so so far so good. Um, I know it's the second dose that people talk a lot more about because that boosts that immunity, and people do have more reactogenicity after the second dose, but um, so far everything is good, and I know I'm scheduled to work tomorrow and, and see patients. Do you think some of this is just yearning for the vaccine and we've waited waited a long time but obviously it's been it's been record-setting pace but now that that it's going to some of the healthcare workers the rest of the population is like get it to us get it to us we already got some good news with the the possible sixth or seventh doses in some of the pfizer vials and who knows if that continues but is it is it just everybody looking for a way to think how can we speed this up now that it is here it's not this potential thing anymore Definitely, because we know that our way out of this public health emergency is the vaccine, that we haven't in the United States been able to test, trace, isolate. We haven't been able to preserve hospital capacity. Um, we, we, we've kind of muddled through this pandemic from the very beginning, and, and everything was really set on the vaccine as our way out of this. And uh, that's why uh, there is so much uh, anxiety about getting this vaccine program rolled out as fast and as quickly as possible. You were talking about the second uh, shot that you're going to get in a few weeks. Are you more concerned about reactions to that? Based on the clinical data, if you look at the clinical trial from the Pfizer study, and I got the Pfizer vaccine, there were more reactions after the second dose, which makes sense biologically because you've already got some immunity and now you're getting hit with the the the, 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 the mRNA again, and and that immunity is going to boost and, and jump into action as it's supposed to. And when you get those when you get those feelings of not feeling so well, that's actually evidence that the vaccine is working. And from the clinical trial data, it was more common after the second dose than after the first. Remind us where we are with the others, uh, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, that can add to our pool uh, at some point, hopefully. AstraZeneca and Johnson Johnson are still in the phase three clinical trial data. Uh, part, part AstraZeneca has had some setbacks because they had that dosing error that was kind of fortuitous and gave them a better result. So there's going to be some time before AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson are ready to submit for emergency use authorization. I suspect it will be in the new year. Um, the, the Moderna one, I get, is on the precipice of being approved. And then there are others even farther back in the pack. So so I think you know maybe by the su- spring or summer, we may have four four vaccines available to at that time. Uh, but it is going to take some time for the other two to come online. Dr. Amesh Adalja, Senior Scholar, Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security. Rich people are used to getting what they want and when they want it. Some are now trying to cut in line to get a COVID vaccine quickly. 
There are offers even of thousands of dollars in donations to hospitals to move up to the front of the line, but the wealthy finding that money isn't solving all their problems uh, this go-around. Dr. Jeff Toll is an internal medicine physician. He's a concierge doctor here in L.A. So, doctor, let's, let's start there. Uh, what is a concierge doctor? So what that means is it's basically a membership type of service where instead of a patient paying per visit, they pay to kind of belong to a membership program that can involve various services, including things like house calls and nursing visits, things like having cell phone access to the doctor, um, all sorts of various uh, types of services that we can offer. Okay, so we now have uh, at least two uh, effective and apparently safe vaccines for COVID, and the jockeying is on for people to try to jump the line right. and get it first. So have you experienced that in household? Yeah, so obviously all of our patients are, you know, successful and, you know, what in whatever field that they're in and are hoping to, you know, get the vaccine if they're able to. I think in general as concierge physicians, I think a, a classic example is, you know, Michael Jackson and unfortunately what happened with him where someone who's powerful or celebrity is asking for medications inappropriately, let's say, and it's very difficult for the physician to, to say no when, when someone's asking for something, especially if they're paying you well for your services. And so I think one of the things I've learned over the years is to be able to say no and to, when appropriate, you know, be able to understand who, who needs the vaccine first. I think um, we need to be prioritizing elderly people, people who are at the highest risk first, um, with the understanding that we are doing what we can to get the vaccine for our patients, um, but obviously we'll, we'll still need to prioritize those at the highest risk. What have the conversations been like? Is it, hey, doctor, how do I get on the list? How do I get to the top so of the list? Has someone every... actually said, do I give money to get one of these? Yeah, so I think people are willing to spend money. They're willing to donate to charitable organizations. I think people understand that they're, you know, maybe skipping the line in a way. So I think a lot, especially a lot of, you know, our patients are willing to do something charitable. You know, can I donate $25,000 to Cedar sinai Is there anything I can do to get to the front of the line? So it's not as if they just think they deserve it without giving anything. But again, I think in the, in the, sh- in the short term, when there are not enough vaccines, we really do need to be prioritizing. So since you brought up uh, Cedars, uh, here's where my skepticism slash cynicism uh, comes in, Doc. Uh, as you know, that's a hospital that has a fair number of buildings mm-hmm. plastered on their sides are the names of some pretty prominent and, for the most part, living uh, right. famous people. I yep. won't mention names, but, but famous people. We all know who they are. Why do I have great difficulty believing that if one of those people whose names is on that building drives up, I don't know, tomorrow in their chauffeur-driven whatever with their family and says, I want everybody vaccinated pronto, Cedars is really going to say, nope, can't come back? So I'm, I'm happy to say that I'm not on the inside. To, you know, I'm a private physician, so I'm not on the inside to be making those decisions for them, which I'm ha- happy to not be. But, um, you know, I think Cedars um, will have to ask the same questions that, you know, we have to ask in terms of my private office, in terms of, you know, ethically determining who who needs the vaccine first and who may be able to skip the line. I think you could argue people who are mega 
donors and do so much good for the hospital, you know, and really save a lot of people's lives, actually, with their donations. You know, these are tough choices for the hospital, but again, I'm glad I'm not making those for them. How far have some of the other doctors like you that you know of gone to get ready? There's some stories out there, people actually buying some of these these super sub-zero freezers. We have freezers, right. we're ready. Yeah. So we, you know, it, it, this comes to really everything in medicine. We're as proactive about our patients' health as possible. So whether that means we're doing preventative health screenings and cancer screenings in normal times or now, you know, getting access. So, you know, right now we have uh, full capacity for doing at-home COVID testing on demand. So if someone tells me they need a COVID test, I can have a nurse at their house within 30 minutes, pretty much anywhere in Los Angeles. So we're doing, we're always at the forefront of what's possible for our patients. And obviously getting the vaccine is right now number one on the list. And so, yes, we have freezers. Yes, we've applied. Yes, we've try are trying everything we can to get those vaccines as soon as we can. Um, at the moment, uh, I don't believe that in California, at least, any private physicians have them yet, but we are obviously working on it. Dr. Jeff Toll, internal medicine physician from the concierge doctors. Coming up after this short break, America's last quarantine hospital is hiding in plain sight. Have you heard of quarantine stations? They were set up across the country in the 18th and 19th centuries as places to inspect incoming ships and passengers. If people were sick, they would quarantine at the station's hospital. So how'd that work? What were the conditions like? KYW's Matt Leon talks to the University of Pennsylvania history professor David Barnes about the Lazaretto, which is the country's last surviving quarantine hospital. Every ship headed for the Port of Philadelphia had to stop and be inspected at the Lazaretto. And depending on the judgment of the Lazaretto physician, ships could be detained for anywhere from a few hours to, in extreme cases, a month or more. So if you end up at the Lazaretto, what could you expect if the, the physician says, you're not going anywhere for X amount of days? What kind of care could you expect? What what was day-to-day life like? Uh, I mean, obviously, if you're sick, you're in bed. But if uh, what was it like? Honestly, it was feast or famine at the Lazaretto. There were, you know, there were weeks and months at a time with almost no activity whatsoever. In other words, ships were arriving all the time, but there might be one or two ships undergoing quarantine, you know, cargo ships without many passengers, just a small crew, and uh, no patients sick in the in the Lazaretto Hospital. And there were entire years with one or even no patients admitted into the Lazaretto Hospital. But then, so, so there, were, there were times when life at the Lazaretto was excruciatingly boring. And in fact, many people who spent time there, who were healthy passengers, complained that their life was completely uneventful, and they couldn't wait to get back to their normal lives. Sentiment that sounds familiar these days in 2020. However, when there were a large number of ships under quarantine or a large number of patients in the hospital, life could just be desperate. People were crowded together. If they couldn't stay on the ships because the ships had to be cleaned or disinfected or ventilated, they would sometimes be put up, the healthy passengers would be put up in tents in the open air on the, uh, the green space between the main building of the Lazaretto and the river. And so that the Lazaretto green could be just 
covered with tents, hundreds and hundreds of passengers, healthy passengers being housed there. And food was sometimes short. The Lazarus, you know, ships theoretically provided their own food for their passengers and crew. But sometimes after a long voyage, their food reserves were gone. And Lazaretto had to scramble to provide food for everybody. Every sick sailor or passenger arriving at the Lazaretto was admitted into the Lazaretto hospital and received medical care there. Now, we wouldn't recognize the treatments and the medicines that they were given at the Lazaretto to be state-of-the-art medical care today. We would consider it to be primitive at best. And yet, the patients at the Lazaretto Hospital did surprisingly well. About 90% of them survived. And they had some very serious, often fatal illnesses, including the two most common illnesses treated at the Lazaretto were yellow fever and typhus. Still to this day, there's no cure, there's no specific treatment for yellow fever. And certainly in the 19th century, there was no specific, widely effective treatment for typhus. But the patients survived. And I believe that they survived because they were given basic nursing care. They got food and drink. They got rest. They got clean clothes and clean bedding, a bed to sleep on, and basic nursing attention. Now, the nurses and the Lazaretto physician were sometimes, you know, dreadfully overworked, particularly when, you know, ships arrived with up to three or 400 passengers aboard crammed into the cargo holds of these, of these ships and many of them starving. And sometimes 40 or more passengers from a single ship would have to be admitted at the same time to the Lazaretto Hospital, which could really, in ideal conditions, could accommodate something like 30 or 35 patients. Sometimes they had hundreds at a time. So in those cases, it would have been hectic, chaotic, and desperate. And in extreme circumstances, in one case in 1804, in a situation like the one I just described, you know, many ships undergoing quarantine, lots of patients in the hospital, ships arriving day after day full of sick immigrants, starving immigrants, the healthy passengers who had been staying for weeks in quarantine, in packed in tents on the Lazaretto Green, through intense heat, through rain, they got so fed up with the conditions that they actually rioted and caused several hundred dollars worth of damage at the Lazaretto, which in 1804 terms was a lot of money. But in a way, it's kind of surprising that there was only that one riot, given how many people spent time there and the conditions they were living in. And as I said, it's, it's remarkable that so many of the patients treated at the Lazaretto, even with terrible fatal diseases, did survive. So it's possible to look at the Lazaretto and think, well, I'm sure glad I didn't have to go through that, but people, people did okay. A high school student in Texas says his school district is not doing enough to protect students and their families. The boy says his mom is at high risk if she gets the virus. So the family asked if the boy could take his finals virtually. The school district said no. But the district says it did offer multiple options, including letting the teen take his finals alone in a room with just one proctor wearing PPE. The district says the family refused. So the teen showed up to school to take his finals. He was wearing 
a hazmat suit. Got that message across, right? Yeah. Uh, we are taking a couple weeks to uh, recharge as this year ends. We'll be back at it in the new year, and hopefully we'll be bringing some, some better news when that happens. Anything's got to be better than 2020. Nowhere to go but up. 